Welcome everyone to the Ad.Podcast. Podcast. Today I have Lev Gordinsky or Leo. Lev and I met probably twelve years ago or more now um, at the in Denver at the Denver DDD meetup. Um, he was involved in DDD and he reviewed my red book and I put an acknowledgement mention of him there in the book. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good to be here. It's been a long time. Yeah, we've uh, maybe crossed paths just a little bit. I think we spoke a few years ago um, during the, the pandemic. But um, yeah, good to have you on the podcast. So you were working, I guess you were in Boulder or Denver mm-hmm. back then and uh, in, in Colorado. And then um, you got recruited by Jet. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I got recruited uh, by Jet. At that point, it was uh, uh, it was it wasn't even called Jet at that point. I didn't come up with a name yet. It, it was just a no name startup out of uh, New Jersey. Uh, but it's it sounded like they had a really great mission. One of the reasons they uh, reached out to me was actually based on my activity with the DDD community. All the all the posting on Stack Overflow, your book, uh, all those things. So uh, it was uh, a nice way. Uh, for DDD to, to lead to something like that. Yeah, and um, yeah, absolutely. And I think you, so I'm trying to think of all the, the timing of it, but shortly after my book was published, I think it was around June or July of 2013, um, I was teaching my workshop. It was sort of like the last DDD tour loca- or IDD tour location in Denver, Boulder. We actually had the workshop in Louisville or something like that in, in Colorado. And um, I had you, because of your interest in F Sharp, I think, um, and functional programming, I had you do a presentation and maybe some little bit of uh, training or something like that, introduction for people to functional programming. And so that was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that now. I actually forgotten about that. What I remember, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, I guess, at Jet, you were able to use F-sharp, right? I mean, wasn't that sort of primarily your... your yeah, uh, yeah. And it was uh, it was actually interesting because when we started at Jet, I was, I was one of the first hires. It was really three of us that were like the first hires. We all started at about the same time. And uh, and I was the, the only one that knew F Sharp at that point. And so we started uh, to with the least amount of friction. We started uh, with uh, C Sharp, but then um, but then I uh, was writing my code in F Sharp, and then we kind of agreed that we would just see what it looks like. Uh, but then after a couple of months, uh, it was the, the it wasn't up to me. It was the CTO who made the call that said, "Hey, we'll just switch everything to F Sharp." And um, and I think uh, some of that was uh, due to uh, perhaps my evangelism. Uh, but I think what was really happening is that he saw me and he's like, this guy, he'll do anything to code in F sharp. Like maybe there's others like him. So let's see if we can find some more. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but, uh, to, to, on the most serious note, I think that the passion in the community, the F sharp community, similar to the DDD community, I think that's very valuable. Yeah. And, um, so then, yeah, I remember seeing tweets from you or some, I don't know, somehow, um, well, I think when you finally did um, have the name Jet and uh, started to attract more attention, I, I think the your engineering team got a lot of, got a lot of um, notice from that. 
And uh, yeah, very, very cool. And what you ended up being vice president of engineering or something there? Yeah, yeah. And that was, I guess, uh, early on, we didn't really have any titles, uh, but we grew very quickly. And so we had to build in the corporate infrastructure uh, yeah. for all of that. So, yeah. and, and so for those who don't know, Jet um, was eventually acquired by Walmart. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. Right. And, and actually, some folks at Walmart, I think some, um, one of the guys, I, I can't think of his name right at the moment here. The, some of these memories are just coming back, but he had me uh, speak to a large group at um, at Walmart some time ago. And th- that was my connection with, with him was through you. And I think he even attended one of my workshops. And uh, I think that was Robin. I think yeah, I, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. 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 So anyway, nice to get uh, reacquainted with all these old memories. But let's talk a bit about um, your experience with software development in general. And if you were to look back, say, 20 years in the software development industry, um, how have things changed in the past 20 years? And then maybe even an acceleration of change in the past five years. What do you think? Yeah, so uh, so if I look back at the early two thousands, um, the we had a very different landscape. That was when I think the cloud was just starting to emerge, but we had nothing like we had today. Uh, I remember I started getting into the cloud at in like two thousand seven, two thousand eight, uh, and uh, it was a very early stage of product at that point. Uh, but before the cloud, uh, the, the software development was uh, quite a bit different. I was still working myself. I was still working on internet-based services. Uh, that's all I ever really did is worked on uh, various. Uh, I actually back in early 2000s, I was working on like a like a what what now Gmail and the documents service provide. I was working on, on like a productivity uh, application, and uh, I remember uh, I was actually writing it in Perl. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, and then, um, and then a few years later is when I got into C sharp and also no cloud, but we had an internet based service that we were running on our own. So we had our own servers, uh, we installed the SQL server installation and, um, uh, and we ran IIS and we had, you know, the one instance of that running and that kind of lasted us uh, several years. Um, and, um, and so uh, if we kind of skip all the way back to today, or even if we say, if, even if I look back when we started Jet, uh, right? At that point, we, we were cloud native. We started in the cloud. And, um, uh, but with that said, the cloud, spe- specifically Azure, was not as mature as it is today. And I think even AWS at that point, I, I remember using that as well. Compared to where they are today, it's a very different landscape. Like they've really figured out a lot of these uh, things pertaining to developer productivity, certainly their, their own services, and, and they tend to be uh, pretty reliable now. Um, and, and so I would say um, over the, the last 20 years, some of the things that have happened are the, the migration to cloud and internet, internet-based services and sort of the maturity of these uh, approaches, the maturity of the infrastructure. Uh, there's been a huge leap uh, in that. Uh, the other factor was that on, on the programming model side of things, it seems like one of the big shifts uh, has been the embrace of parallel and concurrent programming, embrace of more and more uh, uh, features of functional programming language, uh, uh, languages in, in the mainstream languages that we use. Because functional programming languages have been around for, for a long time. Yeah, Haskell has been around longer than Java. But, uh, but we've seen a lot more 
uh, of these features from uh, functional languages be incorporated into the mainstream ones. Uh, that's that's sort of another factor. Um, the other th- role that emerged, I would say, in the context of software development is something I was posting about earlier today, which is this operational role. Because what's a, what's a service? What's like a microservice? Well, I'd say a service is a program written by a programmer plus an SLA, uh, right? Because now you have to think about reliability and uh, you have have your service level agreement. Uh, and, and so, so at least for my own experience as an individual software developer. Uh, that's been another shift is really thinking about uh, services uh, rather than just individual pieces of code. Uh, so these are uh, these are some of the things that come to mind. I guess the other thing that we had a shift uh, uh, and kind of leads into another thing I wanted to talk about, which was uh, what happened with databases, uh, right? And uh, on the one hand, nothing really changed because we had relational databases 20 years ago. We still have them today. They kind of made a comeback. We had a period of like no SQL madness for a while where we thought we didn't need SQL. But I think the, the fact that uh, the relational model is actually a very solid uh, data modeling paradigm, uh, it turns out that you know, we can't just get rid of it uh, and it's going to come in new shapes and forms. And, and I wonder if we think about what might happen next, I think that would be really nice to accompany this relational database model with uh, an operational event-based model and combine the two uh, to to, to really see if we can use the the power of both. I guess the other thing that comes to mind in this context is I remember writing services where a majority of the logic was in a SQL stored procedure. And and so there's been a, a migration away from that. And I remember my reasons for migrating away from that were the fact that it was very difficult to uh, unit test uh, SQL Server stored procedures. It was difficult to make them modular. And even though, uh, in many ways, that approach is a lot more efficient in terms of uh, the network chatter between the database and the server, it, it, and at the end of the day, <clears throat> being able to consistently test uh, your system and reuse code uh, was a lot more important than, uh, than efficiency. So these are these are some of the things that that come to mind, um, but uh, I'm sure there's other stuff that has happened. Yeah, speaking of stored procedures, and it seems like there's a lot of uh, Microsoft SQL Server stored procedure solutions out there, and they just don't scale. I mean, is that sort of what you found? I I um, you know engaged with uh, a specific company that had. Um, I don't know. So I think they were getting something like 12 transactions per second was max. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, we were, we were seeing more throughput than that a long time ago on, you know, all kinds of databases. Yeah. I think the, the, the scalability and should, uh, to me, it's mostly the flexibility of it, right? You can make a stored procedure run pretty fast, uh, but uh, it's it locks you into using just SQL Server that just that one instance you can't like easily uh, scale uh, just that one instance. Uh, SQL Server is being is known for being difficult uh, to to scale. But with that said, it's not going to go away anytime soon. It's still a powerful model, right? SQL is actually kind of cool because. Uh, you have the SQL query language to query the data, but they also have the data manipulation language where you can insert and delete and all that sort of stuff. And uh, it seems like that's really nice. I mean, if we could just combine some of the things of the programming languages that we use, the general purpose programming languages, 
and combine that with being able to run code uh, really close to the data, uh, that that could be really nice. Yeah, I've. Um, I think one thing that's kind of strange to me is when when we um, deal with NoSQL databases, it also seems like the query language or the query functional interface or something like that just becomes very sort of strange and wieldy. Have you experienced that too? It's just like, wait, you know, if you are used to SQL at all, it seems like they could just make it not SQL, but just a little bit more intuitive to people who've spent, mm-hmm. you know, 20, 30 years writing SQL. Yeah, well, I think that's starting to change. I think they're doing that a lot more now. I think uh, I think they started with, uh, I mean, my, my guess uh, would be that when they built some of those uh, very popular NoSQL database early on, like Reoc and Cassandra, uh, uh, and uh, uh, there was a few others. Uh, I mean, a lot of them were based on the Amazon, like Dynamo paper. Um, but, but all those early ones, they were designed for a specific task and this query language came in as like a secondary thing. And it was designed where they did the simple things first. They didn't do full-blown SQL. Uh, they said, well, we'll do that later. And then when they come to it, they'll realize the complexity is the same complexity that SQL runs into. And you can't just, you know, make something better that quite easily. Uh, and, um, <clears throat> uh, but now they're kind of saying, okay, yes, yeah, SQL has value. Let's bring it back. Like for example, Cosmos, we use uh, Cosmos and it is a non-relational database. It's more like a document oriented database, you might call it. Uh, but it has a SQL like uh, query language, but, uh, there's no joins. You can't join between, uh, tables or containers as they call them. Uh, but, you, but on the, uh, on the other hand, uh, you can, you can have, um, uh, collections as fields in the object, right? So, for example, from the perspective of domain-driven design, you really store the whole entity in the document, and you can kind of query within it, um, but you can't join uh, using Cosmos itself. You can't join containers. Yeah, I think uh, Martin Fowler called that the um, aggregate database or something like that, aggregate store. So oh. referred, referred to it as that. Because, yeah, you just sort of carve out this one chunk of, uh, you know, data structure, I guess, that, that belongs to a single um, DDD aggregate that just, you know, kind of gets uh, uh, persisted very simply into the database. Yeah, yeah and, and by the way, Cosmos is a wonderful piece of technology. I think the, the joins, I actually have uh, conversations, uh, and, uh, makes me think of another post uh, uh, slash rant uh, to, to write on LinkedIn, where I have uh, other junior engineers coming to me saying like, well, we should be using SQL Server. Uh, and uh, I, to be fair, I think a lot of their arguments are valid, uh, right? Uh, and one of the reasons, of course, they say is that so they could do joins, uh, right? But this was, uh, I would say, one of the primary reasons uh, uh, in the past uh, I had trouble scaling SQL Server is that uh, it's the fact that over time you end up in a data structure uh, with all the relationships that involves a lot of joins, right? They're powerful and you start to use them for all these different scenarios, but <clears throat> uh, having uh, access to all these joins, it will inevitably lead to uh, inefficiency in the system. So that's one of the guiding principles with Cosmos is they deliberately avoid joins. They kind of pass that on to the application uh, developer to, uh, to handle that. Uh, but I do see them at some point because you, you still need joins. Like you still you need to do it in the application, right? So it's like they need to solve it at some point. 
I think that uh, maybe the the technology isn't quite there yet because one of the things that happens, one of the things that we kind of move away, I would say, from SQL, uh, one of the reasons that no SQL emerged is that um, SQL uh, is inherently synchronous, meaning uh, you update a table, it updates all the indices, it does everything all at once. Uh, and it can't really message from a SQL to, to other databases, right? You can access the transaction log, and they've done that with like Postgres type of databases, but it's not really designed uh, uh, to be used as like a, a, a write-ahead log directly. You can't really access the transaction log, or it's not convenient. And, and so, um, whereas the NoSQL databases kind of made that one of their, their core functions. Uh, but, uh, but yeah. I think actually Debezium supports, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Debezium, it's more sort of on the um, Java side of the world, but I think it you know would work for anyone. It, it, uh, but it does support SQL Server and it supports Postgres. The, the other interesting thing about um, uh, Relational is like uh, there, there's a company called Yugabyte that maybe you've heard of it, but, but they have um, uh, basically a Postgres emulator, essentially, right? Um, they, and they can emulate um, Cassandra, they can emulate, I don't remember, se- several different kinds of databases. And um, it's really built on top of RocksDB, I think the whole thing mm-hmm. is. Uh, but anyway, they, they actually have global scale for ACID transactions, and it's actually not bad performance. So that's another kind of interesting development in database. Yeah, yeah. There's quite a few interesting ones. I mean, uh, uh, Microsoft built their own Cosmos. Google has their own Spanner. Um, and, uh, and there's interesting uh, third-party ones uh, like CockroachDB uh, also. It's like they're kind of addressing these things at SQL Server, but they, they can do asynchronous messaging and updates like uh, materialized views and things like that. Because uh, because you keep running into the same issues with, with databases uh, all the time, uh, and it'd be nice to just solve them once and for all. You're always going to be needing to join in some shape or form. You're always going to need to have materialized views, uh, and you're always going to need to publish an event whenever you perform an operation. Like, why can't they just make one database that does it all? Yeah, I mean, what if we had a database that actually natively supported CQRS? <laughs> you know, exactly. Like yeah. that. You know, just like it, it thinks the way that our applications need to work, I guess, or the, you know, services that we develop. Yeah. I think the reality is actually, that's very difficult to build that kind of industrial grade system. Uh, uh, right. Because I think that, um, Microsoft could have, uh, uh, done it already. Right. But I guess it's pretty difficult. Cosmos already is such a sophisticated piece of technology with all the replication it's replicated within a data center. Uh, but it's also replicated across data centers and you have various consistency guarantees for doing that. Uh, they, they had to create a new type of, uh, uh, data structure for on-disk storage called like Omega trees or something like that. So it's like a, it's a pretty, uh, uh impressive piece of engineering. I mean, they kind of redid the whole stack. Uh, the interesting thing though, is that they, they run Cosmos itself on a piece of infrastructure on Azure called Azure service fabric which is available for, for use directly. And, uh, and I guess a lot of the Azure services are actually running on top of Service Fabric. Now, service Fabric is, is quite interesting uh, in that uh, it's not quite the database that we just discussed wanting, but you can get uh, some new types of architectures uh, with it, right? Like we've all gotten used to, uh, I guess the other thing that's shifting or potentially shifting is we've all gotten used to the three-tier architecture, client, 
server database. Uh, but Service Fabric shifts that picture a little bit because they have it where you kind of have your server and everything is in memory, right? But because it's a cluster of servers, you guarantee that one server will always be up and it still commits it to disk, but sort of like asynchronously, right? It does the IO asynchronously, but it guarantees uh, that it's... Uh, it's consistent for that short duration in memory when it's just being uh, written, right? And then you access this data as if it were just a, a regular dictionary or a collection, uh, right? You just look up a dictionary, it's just this dictionary ends up being committed on disk. And now this is uh, the idea of where you start thinking about a system more like a video game, uh, right? Where you have your entities, they're just objects uh, that are in a dictionary and you create new instances, you persist uh, and it persists exactly what you have in memory. And so with this idea, right, it's kind of um, uh, moving beyond this end-tier uh, model, right? Because in this model, it's almost like uh, the, uh, the, the, the in-memory operations is the core because we tend to structure the whole application around committing to the database, right? The transactional boundary. It's all around avoiding uh, uh, transactions or trying to avoid transactions, trying to avoid writing in multiple places, uh, and that's kind of like the center of the, the architecture. Whereas if we kind of flip that around and the primary storage is in memory and it's kind of committed in the background, then you can really focus on, on the core logic. I guess the system uh, also runs uh, Halo uh, for, uh, for Microsoft. Yeah, it's, it's um, Microsoft Orleans is underneath that. And I think Service Fabric um, kind of took a snapshot of that and, mm-hmm. and uh, to, to, you know, or the team brought it in and, and based service fabric off of that. Um, and, and actually we have a, in our open source um, Zoom platform, reactive platform, our actor model and Orleans is based on actor model, service fabric is based on actor model. We have a very similar, um, you know, kind of uh, operation because actually the actors themselves make a very good, um, e- excellent um uh, aggregate boundary. So, um, you know, like you send a message to even a type safe message, you know, as a, like a method and invo- looks like a method invocation, you send that to the actor. And once the actor performs its, uh, requested operation, it can just simply apply an event to itself, but in the background that actually gets persisted asynchronously. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so, you know, any state, um, any sort of state query or state, you know, sharing, not, you don't share state, but sharing in terms of a snapshot of it is guaranteed to be um, up to date at all times. So it's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it is a very cool model that uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I like it a lot. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so that, that works. Um, that works pretty nice. And uh, that's uh, some of the things that we're, uh, uh, we're doing at Alvis um, as well, exploring. Yeah, why don't you tell us about maybe, you know, I think we wanted to just discuss a little bit sort of what's next for domain-driven design. We've mm-hmm, both, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I mean, we met each other probably 12, 14 years ago around the, you know, domain-driven design. So we've been around it for a long time. How how, how do you see it changing or having a different influence than it's had before? Yeah, so so for me, I was always very interested in domain-driven design because the, the problem that it's trying to solve, it, 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 to me, always seemed very important. And I've always been surprised by how little attention uh, the, the, the academic community pays to these problems 
And it's really under the, the radar, right? It's not really part of like an engineering discipline. It's there's this community that's trying to address the situation of like, how do we write uh, maintainable, good quality code that's easy to evolve, avoids bugs. That's kind of the perspective I was coming at. I thought, what's the best way to represent knowledge, uh, right? So it was a broader uh, thing that I, I was thinking about. What's the best way to represent knowledge? Because we're, we're building these systems to solve a certain uh, use case. We need to create a model of the system uh, that, that, we're, that we're working on. What's the best way uh, to do that? Uh, and, uh, and this is a very much an open, uh, open problem. Uh, right, and I think that when you're programming in a programming language, uh, uh, you are led into certain things uh, more or less naturally. Like for example, uh, it seems natural to define a class with fields that correspond to the data that you want to store about what you're modeling. Right? I mean, there's other ways to to do this sort of thing, uh, but that tends to be where uh, you go. Right? Um, and um, uh, but then uh, in simple cases that that works, right? If you have a CRUD type of application, you have a data structure, you can read it, update it, delete it, and you don't really need to worry about it. Uh, but uh, I was working applications that which that were much more complicated. The CRUD model just breaks down. The CRUD model is a good way to think of your database, not uh, about your application. And um, uh, and so I was looking, I was looking for for help in this regard. I was looking to see how have people addressed this problem and and uh, one of the uh, one of the things I learned about was uh, domain driven design, which is kind of tackling this this exact uh, problem. Um, and uh, and so that's how I got into the community and started interacting with everyone. Yeah. So, where do you think we're headed in the future? Is it, you mentioned programming language? Do you think that new programming languages and programming language designers might um, think in terms of I don't know, building some primitives or something that that match up to domain-driven design. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, one of the things where I, I think, uh, and this is uh, something I'm kind of exploring in a more academic uh, sense, is uh, I, I think that where where it should go is that we should actually uh, look at SQL and the relational model and say, okay. I think that's valuable for domain-driven design, right? Because uh, the relational model captures very important relationships. And these are things that you do need to talk about in the domain language. But the problem with the relational model is that it's only half the picture, right? You still need this operational model, and that seems to be uh, missing. Um, and, and so so what would, uh, what would an operational uh, model look like? Well, uh, uh, you need a way that uh, you need to do uh, something that says, okay, given this input, this table will transform in this way. This row will will transform in, in this way, and I think that um, there's there's value in making the the components that make up the domain model first class. And, and here, here's here's what I mean by that. Like I said earlier, when uh, you're writing in C sharp, let's say it's natural to represent an entity. You say class load, like we have an Alvis, a load or an order, and then you have uh, order ID. Uh, line items and uh, created date, right? So that's how you represent this entity. Then when you uh, uh, start having a richer domain model and you use domain-driven design, you start adding events and, and behaviors that change the, the, the state of this entity. So, so if you're using C-sharp, the, one of the best ways is that you just have methods in, in the class that given some input, transformed uh, the, the entity and maybe return an event that can then... Uh, uh, be actually used for event sourcing purposes, or maybe it's just a return some sort of a response. 
Uh, and so all that's, uh, and, and all that's, uh, great. But, uh, one of the things that's actually very difficult to do with code is, uh, a refactoring, right? Refactoring in SQL Server is expressed in terms of SQL Server, or rather SQL, right? So you could say create new table, transform the old table into the new one. And so the refactoring operation itself is actually uh, some SQL code, right? Whereas in C Sharp, uh, that's not at all the case. The refactoring is just you change the file and you commit it, uh, right? Uh, and so, so that creates a lot of problems. Uh, the fact that uh, these entities and their schema uh, and the fields within an entity that aren't first-class concepts also poses a challenge, right? Because uh, one of the things that's pretty difficult to do in a class is to iterate through all the properties, right? Well, you use a reflection, for example. But then uh, with using reflection, you kind of lose a lot of the semantic content of what that property might be. In many ways, I would say domain-driven design actually uh, leads you away from reflection. You have to explicitly think about every field. Uh, but I think if we had a programming model wherein we would define an entity almost like not as a class, but as an object, right? We say new load entity, add field, add field, add field. Um, and, and then the fields, the, the, the data fields for the entity become first-class concepts, right? And then you could define operations as first-class concepts, right? Uh, one interesting way to think about event sourcing is that Event sourcing takes a, a, an object like the event, right? It's just some data. It, it takes this object and turns it into an operation, right? Because you can take this object, you can have the apply method that takes the input state and produces the output state, right? So this is kind of like we have some concrete data, but it actually turns it into an operation. And, and so I think that we can implement uh, domain-driven uh, design models by defining the fields, defining the entity as just like an object, adding the fields to it, and then defining the operations that say this operation is actually defined such that uh, it takes these fields as input, checks this conditional, and uh, and produces this uh, as output. And so, so then uh, the operation itself could be could itself be code, right? It's just a sequence of steps. There's a fork. There's a join, uh, and and then refactoring would be more like uh, transforming an in-memory data structure. Um, and, and so, if you could then take this object and you say, "Okay, I have an object that represents the load entity," and then you could create an instance, uh, and then you take some data that produces an instance, uh, and uh, and so I think one of the directions that's interesting to explore is this idea of making operations in domain-driven design first-class concepts um, and uh, taking the relational model and combining. And there's there's a lot of interesting work going on with this. Uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, some of the work pertaining to uh, modeling uh, relational databases using uh, category theory. Uh, and, and it's a very, very natural model. Uh, and the, the basic idea is that a database schema where you have the tables and the relationships between them, that's just a category, right? And then the database instance is a functor. It takes a category and returns a set of instances, right? So it's a very, very natural fit for, for category theory. In fact, I think it's a great way to learn category theory. People that have done relational modeling, they're basically doing category theory. They just don't know it. Uh, and uh, uh, But then what category theory can do is it takes it further and it, it can actually represent operations, uh, and uh, define them in a very explicit first-class way, uh, and, and I think uh, there'd be some some value uh, in that. And uh, it's just a curiosity uh, 
uh, to explore. I question I have about that is would the operations be part of the object? Would you add those to the object or would they be separate and you send the object to the operation or like functional programming? What do you think? Well, it would be, it would actually be uh, flexible in a sense that uh, the, the operation would just define uh, the, the logic. And as far as, uh, and I'm not sure if that's what you were getting at, but as far as the, the modality, right, is it like, does it run synchronously or eventually do we, we wait for a response or not? That could all be a pluggable uh, parameter, right? You could say, in this case, I want the operation to complete synchronously. Uh, but in another case, uh, it wouldn't complete synchronously. But uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm uh, uh, understanding that correctly. Oh. Well, what I meant is, um, like, do you do you perform the operation by saying object dot, you know, in essence, the, the mm-hmm. operation, and then the operation has access to the, to the data within the object, just like we have today in object-oriented, or do you mm-hmm. see it more like the operation is a separate function that you pass the object to or the you know, the type, uh, sort of mm. like Haskell or any, you know. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I, know, uh, I guess in that sense, uh, uh, that would, that could even depend could, on the programming language yeah. that you used, right? Cause I think this model you could implement in Haskell or in, in C sharp. So if it were C sharp, uh, then it would be where you have an object that represents the entity. You create an instance of the entity, which is just another object, and then you kind of invoke uh, an operation on them. And what I find actually to be most convenient is that you can kind of um, write the objects and make them seem almost like regular objects where they have fields, but those fields... Uh, the, the properties that refer to the fields, they're under, accessing, accessing the underlying object that takes care of the fact that, okay, well, if you're changing a field, maybe it has dependencies on other fields. You can't just set it, right? So you can encode relationships between fields and how they transform under events uh, into the object. And then you don't have to like think about it every time. Because now when you write these methods uh, and you're accessing fields, uh, you kind of uh, have to think about it, right? Like if you have a really clean domain model, um, that, then it's nice. At least it's all kind of in one place. But thinking about all the different state transitions and all the things that all the things that are allowed, what's not allowed, uh, uh, and, and kind of housekeeping tasks like the fact that uh, you know you might want to uh, the event should have all the data that was changed as part of the operation. Well, usually you have to kind of explicitly code that in. But uh, it seems like that's something that could just be taken care of uh, automatically. Interesting. I guess from the standpoint of the question I asked, it could be that the language itself is flexible enough to handle either one, right? If, if everything yeah. is really an object of some kind, like even the operation is an object, um, then the object could be attached to another object which holds the state, or the object could be just a function that you have to pass the yeah. uh, state to, you know, to, to be able to perform, you know, some kind of a Yeah, I think outside of the syntax, one of the mental models I always keep in mind is the fact that uh, functional or non-functional programming, at the end of the day, you have state in the system, you have memory, and you have compute, right? And you have a computer reading memory, producing new states. And you have that with functional programming or non-functional programming. And so I always visualize uh, when I think about an operation, I do think in a more functional way. I think about like an input type and an output type. Uh, But you can also take a method and just assume that, yes, there's an input state and it changes when the operation completes. There's still some sort of a transition. Time passes, right? There's an arrow of time. Uh, And so I kind of really think about those things uh, as being uh, very similar. Uh, it's just the, the, the dressing is a little bit different. One of the things from programming languages that I think would be nice is uh, like there's this con- construct in functional programming called a lens, 
uh, and a lens is kind of a, a first-class uh, field, uh, except uh, a field is usually we, a field is uh, we have an object like uh, an order, and then a field is an order number. Uh, well, a lens is like a more functional way to think about an order number, where it's an operation that takes an order and produces a number. Uh, right, but then when you think about it that way, you can compose operations, and, and then the other thing uh, that a lens can do is that you could say, okay, you could update the order number, uh, and so given an order number and an order, you can produce a new order. Right, so that's the two directions of the lens: is you can read the order number and it can update the order. And so I think if a language had a first class uh, concept uh, of of these lenses, but it really need to be enriched beyond what's currently available. Uh, but things like that uh, would help. Like, for example, one of the uh, one of the things that's always difficult to do in in, uh, in C sharp is to define uh, a class and then iterate all the properties. Uh, right, that's just a difficult thing to do. And uh, I think if we had better support uh, for for doing these kinds of things, um, it could really help. Yeah, very interesting topic. Um, so let me think here. We've talked about. Language. We've talked about DDD. We've talked about database. Um, what are your thoughts on dealing with dual write operations? Like you, you know, I, you have a database, and two users are causing an update at roughly the same time. Any thoughts about how to deal with that? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean. The, the dual write, uh, so this is something that I feel like has been plaguing me as a software engineer my entire career is this idea that like, uh, like for example, uh, with domain-driven design, uh, what you're encouraged to do is you define events, uh, right? And, and so, uh, and you, you say you use events to, um, uh, to, to, to record uh, what happened to the entity and to, to then uh, use that to reconstitute the state. Uh, but you can also use events for integration, right? Publish an event, somebody else subscribe to it. That's a very, very powerful model. Well, okay, great. Let's start doing that. How do we do it? Uh, we're using SQL Server. So, okay, so where are we going to publish the event? Well, let's use like uh, Azure Queues, uh, for example, which would be a pretty bad choice for publishing events. But uh, as soon as you start doing that, each one of your operation updates the SQL Server database or whatever database you might have. And then it publishes a message on a message queue. And, and this is supposed to notify other systems that, that something took place. Uh, well, that works uh, great. Uh, but sure enough, uh, you're going to run into scenarios when you update the database, but you fail to update the message queue. Um, and so uh, in, in rare, rare cases, you might be able to have a, a scenario where they're coupled by a transaction coordinator of some sort, like the, the Microsoft Distributed Transaction Coordinator. Uh, but most of the time, you don't have that luxury, right? Uh, and and so, so, so some of the things that have been done, like, for example, at Jet, uh, to address this problem, we just said we're going to use Event Store instead. Uh, and it certainly did this part uh, uh, pretty well. Uh, Cosmos, uh, actually, Microsoft was working on Cosmos when we started building Jet and Event Store. We didn't have it yet. Uh, but uh, they, Microsoft actually told us that we influenced them to build in the change feed in Cosmos because we were asking for this kind of event sourcing driven approach. And so the change feed is a, a core part of Cosmos uh, that does uh, address this particular situation. You could update a document in Cosmos and then it, um, it will be sure to emit that event in the change feed, uh, right? And you could have, the change feed is a lot like Kafka, right? So you could, it's like a log. You can have many subscribers. They each have an offset. 
And so, so without, uh, I would say, if you're not using Cosmos and the Cosmos change feed, uh, I feel like how do people solve this problem based on the what I've seen in the wild, right? Like I've had, uh, I've seen other systems, other code. I, I did some uh, time consulting and I've seen things. And most of the time people don't actually address this. They just have these errors and they have to fix them manually. And now I'm wondering what, what have you seen that, that people do to address this sort of problem? Uh, for me, well, I, I did mention Debezium uh, mm-hmm. previously and um you know, here's the thing, right? I, um, Event Store is is a great product. It, you know, it's a, it, it, they've they've really changed um, their approach to things from being an event store to being a database, right? They want to be a, you know, that's what they want to be to the market. Um, but actually, on several occasions, I've had a hard time convincing clients to use it. So, you know, I, I'm not yeah. saying, you know, I I can see why someone with your, you know, advanced abilities and, you know, other companies are, are willing to do that. They probably, you know, even have a relationship with the people who work on, um, event store. Right. And, and, and so forth. But, you know, most companies really, you know, they, they, they still want to be able to use, I actually, I don't see Oracle being used that much anymore. It's amazing. It's really you know, Postgres and um, uh, MySQL or MariaDB gets used as well, but I would say Postgres for the most part. And I, um, so when you see that kind of, uh, you know, pattern where you need to write events or any kind of, you know, sort of sequential operations where you're merging, um, you know, or essentially dealing with dual writes, well, you just want to get the inserts because it's you know append only right, and then and then uh, from the append only you get this feed through Debezium, which is reading the the transaction log, and then um, there's a plugin, for example, for Kafka. I I don't know how many plugins they have, but let's just say that once you have the Debezium feed, you could actually create a plugin for any kind of you know. Um, uh, queue or, or pub sub or whatever it happens to be. So yeah, mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm not saying that that is the way to do it. And I know that event store has, um, you know, a lot of good, I, I, th- I think they're probably still using JavaScript, right. For some of the, the more complex uh, queries and things like uh, that, or is that, is that not happening? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. We never actually ended up using that in production, the JavaScript query part of it. Mm-hmm. We would just use it directly. We'd write the append events and we'd uh, read uh, the events. Uh, mm-hmm. But, it, but it, yeah, the key thing with event store for us was the fact that we could read and append events to individual streams, but then they had like the fire hose on the back, which with all the events. And that was such a critical piece of our architecture. It was like the backbone of the whole architecture at Jet where all the other systems were basically downstream from event store. And so if we needed to index the data, we put it into Elasticsearch. If we needed to look it up in any sort of way, we cached it in Redis. Uh, and sometimes we projected it into SQL for reporting purposes. Uh, but yes, I, I don't know if I'd recommend it. It was like, it was a really intense technical challenge to operate that sort of thing. Like we had to build the replicators ourselves and, uh, and, and uh, there's no ecosystem around event store to the magnitude that like SQL server has, right? So even having a UI uh, documentation, uh, uh, all that sort of stuff was was a bit more difficult, but uh, it was very good in that 
it kind of forced us to do event sourcing everywhere, which is actually really nice. Uh, we, we, we were saved so many times by the fact that we had a history of all the events. And, uh, and uh, I think it also led us into this uh, asynchronous architecture where uh, the systems were all pretty well isolated uh, from each other. Um, and, and as opposed to the, the typical approach is to build a very kind of synchronous application that, that easy, that, you know, that's the easy and that's the right way to, to build a simple application. But if uh, you want like a bigger application, you want, uh, it's going to be a large team operating it, then making it asynchronous is very helpful. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> another thing that I've done, which I wrote about in, in my red book and I've talked about, you know, almost endlessly is simply, um, keeping a uh, keeping track of the most recent um, row that you've written into a, a relational database, um, like if you're using a sequential, uh, like a sequence or an auto increment or something like that, you can track that, and so you can just have a reader that reads asynchronously. You know this um, the the rows from this database. The, the one problem that you can run into, which is kind of an interesting problem to solve, is that um, you uh, it, there, there is a chance, maybe even a greater po- probability than most people realize, is that when you are using sequences and auto-increment, that um, you can actually have a race condition where one um, thread will get the next auto increment or sequence and the next write attempt but in another thread will get the other one and let's just say for sake of you know illustration that the first sequence is one and the second sequence is two but two is able to write the row before one writes it and you can mm-hmm. query you know because of the transaction you can actually query from zero forward and you can miss one right so um what we've implemented on on the zoom platform for this kind of situation especially because we're using actors and there's you know all this asynchrony going on is um we we actually detect gaps and we have a we have a sort of a protocol that says um, okay, if you see a gap, we're going to do this many retries, and it's it's all configurable. You know, let's say three retries, we're going to wait, you know, a millisecond or two or something like that between each each one. And if we still see the gap, we're going to say we're going to log it and say, okay, we have a gap here. It may be a gap because of a failed transaction, right? Mm-hmm. So that's <laughs> that that can happen too. So it's an okay gap in the sense that you know it, it's not a problem. It's expected because of the failed transaction, but um, what if it wasn't? So it's kind of an interesting, yeah. cool yeah, problem to solve. Uh, yeah. And this is, yeah, this is the other kind of uh, uh, new paradigm you have to keep in mind when building a distributed system. You can't just, you know, have an in-memory lock. You can't just, uh, you can't enforce mutual exclusion. Uh, and so you have to use this kind of approach, right? Just attempt the operation optimistically and then retry. Otherwise, kind of like optimistic concurrency control, right? You can't lock it, but you can at least uh, keep track of the fact that it's been it's been uh, it's been updated. Uh, and this is uh, this actually came up uh, comes up with uh, uh, you know building systems. Like I was saying, we have a pretty junior team at, at Alvis, and one of the one of the engineers was working on this uh, problem where they needed to have like a unique. Uh, 
uh, sequence number on an entity. And it couldn't be a GUID because it had to be user legible, uh, but it had to be sequential and contiguous and unique. And so uh, uh, when they first wrote the code, they, you know, they, the way they wrote it is like, read the latest one from the database, increment it and put it on new entity and store it back. And of course, you know, that would, wouldn't cause problems until much, much later. Uh, and, and so then I asked them to solve it and they solved it using a lock, <laughs> an in-memory lock. They said, well, you know, there's only going to be one of these running. <laughs> uh, but then what if there's a second instance of this whole API? Well, well, then you have to go back to, uh, to that approach. Yeah. Um, actually using the actor model is another good way to solve problems like that because you can't serialize the, you know, ne never block but still serialize the, the requests for whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So you're only dealing with one of those messages at a time and that message has, you know, full access. Um, in fact, uh, Martin Thompson talks about um, what's called single writer and single writer is actually to, to eliminate database contention is one of the fastest ways to, you know, insert data into a database. So. Um, it, it seems counterintuitive. It's like, no, well, if I could have a hundred different threads writing all at once, that would be, you know, much better. But actually, no, it's single writer has some of the highest throughput. Of course, yeah. batching is important there because if you're constantly like one thread just going boom, 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 you know, um, talking to the database right. over a network for that matter, um, it can actually slow things down. So batching those inserts is important. Yeah, and I mean, there, there's some nuance to that. Yeah, single writer, but it's single writer uh, per something, right? It's, it's per I.O. resource, per I.O. subsystem. And uh, for example, one of the limitations Event Store had on Azure is that it did have a single writer thread, but it, the whole database was a single writer thread. So that meant it couldn't take advantage of the fact that the file system is what's really the, the reason for the single writer, right? But if the file system is partitioned, you could actually have multiple writer threads as long as you split the partitions correctly. Uh, and um, um, and so yeah, but within a single partition, you definitely want like a single reader, single uh, single writer, uh, and that's uh, Event Store does that pretty well. Like Kafka does that pretty well too. The sequential uh, writing, they really really make it go fast. Yeah, um, like Udi Dahan told me a few years ago um, that his friend Ayenda, you know, the Raven DB. Mm. guy is actually creating his own evidently I, I haven't heard i haven't followed up on this but evidently in order to get the performance that he wanted he was actually creating his own file system for raven tp mm. yeah and i remember i remember he was uh yeah i remember he was actually uh talking about that a long time ago uh but i think he was like reusing some other file system or some under underlying data store but but i, I mean yeah i mean he can do that kind of stuff yeah. but like <laughs> Uh, but I mean, he's not going to take it all the way to like implementing a new type of data structure called an Omega tree that uh, optimizes on disk storage. I mean, that's a little bit uh, excessive yeah. there, yeah. Uh, but Microsoft can. Yeah. Well, you know, it's just a point of interest. I, um, I think Udi's uh, comment to me was, I really, you know, like we with uh, end service bus, you know, they don't implement, um, um, infrastructure right he's he's like no we we do not create our own um even you know message messaging systems or anything messaging mechanisms they always write on top because he's mm -hmm. like well no we really don't want to be in that business even though i end up, you know it's like 
willing to go down to the to the whatever um yeah the disk level um but the other thing is okay so you have your own file system how do you get that deployed to azure i don't know like does that right, vary, exactly, you know exactly. I, I don't think that could happen but anyway i don't know maybe he's already accomplished that so um okay so we let's let's um go a little bit into a slightly different subject um so well i guess we've talked about the the n-tier or three-tier architecture and and um you know a way to avoid that through like for example service fabric the the actor model um but any other thoughts on on how to deal with that like running the code closer to the data Maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, the the broader uh, topic of mobility of the code, right? Like we we are, we already see the desire for that, right? Like most uh, modern web applications, they have a backend and they have a front end. They have increasingly heavy front ends with JavaScript and all that stuff. Well, JavaScript is code, right? It runs it happens to just run on the client side uh, with Node.js. You can have it both ways. Uh, and, uh, you know, why not also take it closer to, to the database? And so mobility of code is, is very, very interesting. And, uh, uh, one of the, one of the things I want to explore uh, as a next generation architecture is actually using, uh, this blazer.net framework from Microsoft where you can write C sharp and it'll generate the front end code optimized. It'll obviously be your back end code. And then using that with uh, service fabric where, uh, you can have this in-memory uh, oriented uh, data management. And uh, so I think that'll be really, really interesting because right now, in many ways, um, the front-end logic replicates some of the logic on the back-end or vice versa, right? Like the easiest way that comes up is validation logic, right? Like, you know, we certainly need to validate on the back-end, but then it's nicer to do it on the front-end. But then are you duplicating the logic uh, and, and duplicating, uh, well, most of the time, yeah, you are going to be duplicating the logic, but you can have some sort of code gen. And so I think that's going to be an interesting uh, uh, area uh, to, to, to see if we can actually write uh, a system and then later decide, uh, have that be a configuration uh, that says, okay, you know, compile the system in such a way, hey, d- deliver some of this code to the front end, run it there a little bit, deliver some of it here to this database, uh, or run it there. Uh, I think things like that uh, will be interesting. I also think that uh, uh, where one of the things the, where the cloud could go is being more and more first class, right? Where you would literally write the whole system as just code. Because now you write code, most of the things that the code does is like data management. The system architecture isn't really evident in the code. Right, it's sort of on the outside of the code. It's implied by you know, the fact that you have a connection string to a database, and then you have another service with another connection string to the stream on that database, and that's what implies that these two systems are connected. But it'd be nice to write that out to say I have the service here that subscribes to this service here, and have this uh, uh, representation of the system in the code, and then you have that model, and then it compiles to a certain type of uh, infrastructure on uh, a VM. Uh, a certain database and all that sort of stuff. Um, just like uh, we have uh, a, on, a, on a smaller scale, there's this thing called staged programming. I think it's called staged programming where um, like they use some of those things to kind of like optimize link expressions where you basically uh, do something that generates some code and then runs it more efficiently. For example, if you have like a complicated link expression in C sharp, right, you have a bunch of where, 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 select, where, where, well, you can fuse that into like a very, very quick for loop 
right? And so stage programming allows you to, to do that stuff. It sort of compiles the code into a more efficient form. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering if we're going to see a lot more of, of that sort of stuff, like first-class system architecture that then fuses into like a very efficient binary almost, right? It runs like on a Raspberry Pi. Because uh, I feel like there's so much inefficiency in, in software, right? And any software engineer knows how much inefficiency there is in software across all the layers. And it just seems like so much has to happen for like a web app to come up. Uh, I wonder how much electricity we could save, how, much, how many trees we could oh. save by. <laughs> you know, I, I've been saying for a long time, and I think people, you know, view, kind of view this this comment or viewpoint as as sort of uh, at least avant-garde, if not ridiculous. But, um, you know, that many of the enterprises that I've worked on could run most of their enterprise software on Raspberry Pis. Like if they, you know, truly, I mean, I'm not, I'm not joking. And there are Raspberry Pi cloud uh, hosting operate, operators out there now. There are, you know, you can create um, Raspberry Pi clusters and things like that. They're really inexpensive, yeah, and they're, and they're low power. And I don't know, I, to me, it just makes perfect sense. I've, I've always, um, I've said for a long time that I need to just take like a few months and, and do that you know, and prove mm -hmm. that it works. And unfortunately, I never have time to do that. But could we work on that together sometime? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, okay, let's talk about DevOps and um, mm -hmm. um, uh, site reliability engineers, right? Yeah. Sorry. So what, what's yeah. your, what are your thoughts on that? So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of thoughts. I had a really... Uh, uh, fortunate uh, privilege of uh, working with uh, what I would say is some of the best in the world when it comes to SRE. Uh, my, my boss at Jet was uh, a guy by the name of John Turek, and he uh, came from Google, and he was running their ad-serving platform, which is kind of important uh, for them. He was the he was the SRE director on that, and uh, and so he uh, he really uh, created a very strong uh, operational uh, culture. And uh, like I said earlier, what, 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 what's, what's really an operation? What's a service, right? Because we used to write programs, but now we're writing services. What happened? Well, uh, a service is a program plus an SLA, uh, which means that, uh, sure, it has the business logic, but it also has the operational concerns. How much load can it handle? What happens when there's an error? Uh, how do you fix the error? Like, how do you communicate with the customer? Uh, and uh, what's the maximum latency it should experience and, and all those sorts of things. Uh, and that's, uh, those are very, very important things. And, and the skill set required to, to be a good operator in production is very, very different from writing code. Uh, and, and so shipping uh, code into production, I was just writing a post earlier today about how back in the day, like back in the 90s, uh, I, I remember the story of how the, the Microsoft Word team uh, shipped their version of Word and then went on a vacation for two weeks. Uh, and of course, today, that doesn't really work because when you ship your code, that's when the real work starts. That's when you discover all these issues with it. And, and, and doing that requires a skill set, requires practice. Yes, uh, we do test in production. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course, of course. And, and yeah, and, and again, it's like, of course, you're going to do unit testing and all the testing, but no amount of testing, no amount of planning is going to identify what happens when uh, the, the rubber hits the road. Uh, so to say. And so to that end, you just need to have a process for doing that, a protocol training. Um, and, and so the first thing you got to think about is monitoring and metrics, right? You have to make sure uh, that 
uh, you're able to understand the state of the system based on the telemetry that you're getting from it because you're not going to be able to log into the machine. You're not going to ask the user to send you what they saw through the Chrome debug window. You're not going to uh, uh, you're not going to run the debugger through the code. Sometimes it's even difficult to run a profiler on a production application. So you have to rely on this uh, telemetry and you have to kind of embed that into the development process. It can't just be an afterthought. You have to really think about it uh, right away. Uh, the other thing is then you have to make sure you have the infrastructure. And that's one of the things where uh, things have gotten a lot better. Like Azure has such a great solution for this. You don't have to think about it. You write your code in C Sharp and then all the metrics just show up. You could slice and dice them in any way that you want. Distributed tracing, everything is already baked in. Uh, but that wasn't always the case. And so you have to spend a lot of time making sure the code is instrumented, making sure you had the platform for, for indexing all these logs, displaying them. Uh, considering logs versus metrics and all that sort of stuff. So that uh, that becomes a very, very important part of the development process. But then uh, being able to actually monitor the system, generate alerts, and debug the system in production, that's a whole other skill set, uh, right? And it's just something that requires practice. Uh, you get an alert, you have to be able to correlate that to, to see if there's user reports of errors. You have to uh, look at all these different metrics. Sometimes the slowness is reported. Well, what's slow? Why is it slow? What, what, what's, what's the bottleneck? Being able to find that, it could be a bunch of different things. It could be the network, the machine, could be your service, could be uh, one, one of the uh, actually very difficult issues to debug is uh, when uh, the code is written in a blocking way, so it's not using non-blocking I.O. properly. And obviously that doesn't cause exceptions, but sometimes you run into like thread and socket exhaustion uh, and it doesn't tell you like where the issue is. You just have to kind of know that this is what happens when you're improperly using uh, async await in, in, in C Sharp. Uh, and then on top of that, there's all the, uh, the review processes. Uh, for example, uh, a production review process, as we call it, is one where we look over the past week, we look at all the incidents, we see what happened, we make sure that there's a fix on the way. Uh, well, the fix needs to be on the way during the incident, but make sure that there's a long-term solution, making sure that we're following up on it. So all these uh, all, all these aspects uh, are very, very different from software development, but they're just as important for providing a good user experience. Yeah, I... You know, my viewpoint of um, DevOps, not so much, I, I don't really have a lot of, I, I've read the the Google Site Reliability Engineer mm -hmm. book and everything, so that's sort of like my my level of insight on, on that. But um, for DevOps, I think it's something very natural. I mean, I've, you know, I've been doing DevOps since way before there was uh, a name for it like that. Um, and, and, I don't know. I I guess um, the you know one thing that a lot of people complain about, and I and I think rightfully so. Like AWS, right? How much investment do you need to make in knowledge in order to really succeed with you know AWS at a um, you know a DevOps level? Um, you know, and, and and actually a lot of developers say they just prefer not to deal with it. And we actually use AWS for our product, Domo, uh, a uh, modeling tool, um, an event storming tool. Um, but we we use it through a platform that you know abstracts AWS for us, and and we use Lambda, right? We use AWS Lambda, but it's not 
um, directly lambda. We, you know, we, we have the advantage of having a layer above. Well, you know, I deployed four times yesterday to, you know, to, to our abstract or platform abstraction. It's still DevOps to me, right? I, I don't know how, what do you think? Is that, is that like, well, no, because you're not in pain and taking, you know, Alka-Seltzer <laughs> well, every mean, hour, think, it's not DevOps. <laughs> well, I think that like, so in my view, there's, uh, I think there, there's no clear definition of these terms, uh, right? Like SRE is one thing, DevOps is kind of, uh, but uh, I'll tell you that uh, at Jet, uh, for instance, we had a, a DevOps role, like we had a team, they called themselves DevOps. And uh, some of what they did was this monitoring stuff, uh, monitoring, but uh, it was also the, the, the just the, product uh, engineers uh, doing the monitoring. Uh, one of the things that DevOps also did is control our cloud resources, right? It's like the cloud is more and more complex and it takes a skill, it takes knowledge. Like what does it mean to spin up a VM? What does it mean to increase the RU consumption on Cosmos? How do you set up the networking? Uh, how do you manage all the different environments? Uh, so that's what uh, our DevOps team uh, did a lot of. But with that said, they didn't necessarily do like the core application development, right? So it was kind of interesting where DevOps, uh, I thought was supposed to be where the developer does operations, but it actually became like more of an SRE uh, role where uh, they weren't really working on the application. They were focused on like the infrastructure. With that, they were in the first line of attack of everything, right? Because like they would get all the alerts uh, right away and they would they would try to see if they could handle the issue without calling the engineers. But most of the time, uh, the engineer had to look if it's like an application uh, issue. Yeah, and, and I think if you talk to some really, you know, I guess what you'd say, hardcore DevOps people, that is absolutely not DevOps, right? Where where you you have a operations person who is not a developer. Um, it really, you know, I think it was meant to mean developers doing operations, yeah. you know, as part of their role, um, instead of having a completely separate role for that. I mean, my my experience in um, you know previous years where everything was in a data center, um, you had these operations people who took your code and deployed it and. It was usually a pain, you know, it was like, okay, how, when is this going to get done? And, or it was on a weekend, right? You got, you got to work on the weekend to have a release and all these things. So, I mean, from that standpoint, it really is good when you can control that and you can even roll back a release if, you know, if there is, a, I rolled something back last night, right? It was like, oops, you know, there, that production test you know, failed. So let me mm -hmm. roll that back. But um, so, you know, I, I, I love the flexibility, but I think if I had to, we're a tight, you know, we're a, we're a uh, boutique um, services and, and product company. Like if we were to try to go all in on AWS or whichever cloud platform, um, you know, we would probably mostly not be nearly as productive as we are right now, right? And it, it would just take too much, um, you know, gray matter to, <clears throat> to 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 invest in that level of platform that I think it's just not worth it for most, you know, small startups or something like mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. Plus the fact that you can burn through capital, uh, mis you know, by mistake really quickly. I don't know if you've ever seen or heard anything about those stories. 
Oh, I mean, yeah, we've had those stories where, uh, like, uh, we, um, Azure will gladly uh, take your money. Um, and, uh, we, we, I remember we did like a load test with Cosmos once, uh, over a weekend that cost us $200,000. But I think, I think we, I think we tried to like recover that somehow because that was like, it wasn't meant to, to do that kind of thing. But, but the point being that, you know, if you allocate your, uh, RUs, uh, your resources in Cosmos uh, to such a scale, they'll they'll take it. You know, they'll, yeah, they'll, they'll they'll handle the load and take the money. The the previous record that I heard was a hundred thousand dollars over a weekend. So you win. Oh, okay. You're like that's pretty. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, hopefully they would say, oh yeah, I could, we can see that was a mistake. So let's not put these guys out of business or so, or whatever. Yeah. Create a big hardship, make make some investors really angry, and you yeah. know whatever. So yeah, well. Um, so just tell us a little bit, you know, and kind of wrapping up, uh, I wanted to talk a little about, about your, the startup that you're working in. It's actually in an industry that uh, is kind of low tech, right? Or maybe becoming high tech, but um, trucking, I think it is, right? And, yep. and uh, so how are, you, how are you optimizing the trucking industry? Yeah, yeah. So Alvis is uh, what we call it as a carrier operating system, carrier trucking company, and, and, and you're actually right. It's 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 a pretty low tech industry. Uh, they they have some uh, high tech things, but the reality is uh, quite grim. Uh, so if you spend uh, if you spend some time at uh, one of these carriers, seeing how does the country move uh, freight, how do things move around the country. And of course, they go on a truck. But what's what happens in between? And it's it's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of things that happen. Uh, and if you visualize what it takes to move an individual truckload, uh, how many people have to collaborate? How many people have to interact? Uh, where the, usually the the business uh, the the players in this industry, the freight industry, are the the carriers, the trucking companies, of course. And there's a lot of them. There's uh, like eight hundred thousand carriers in the U.S. Most of them are small. Uh, 90% of carriers have fewer than uh, 20 trucks, I believe, fewer than six trucks, actually, yeah, fewer than six trucks, right? So most of them are small. There's a few mega carriers, which uh, we have like Walmart and Amazon or the mega, mega carriers. They're not really part of our market because they have their own stuff. But there's a lot of these little carriers. They're a big player in the market, of course. Then uh, there's the actual shippers, right? Like Tyson Foods, King Supers. Those are the guys that would like to get stuff shipped. And then there are the brokers in the middle, the freight brokers. Uh, so the freight brokers are kind of like a middleman where they uh, maintain a lot of these carrier relationships. They have contacts with a lot of carriers and they provide a service to these shippers wherein they'll take their loads and find a carrier to move it. Um, and on the one hand, it seems kind of like a middleman type of role, but it's a very important role because of how fragmented this market is. And for a shipper, it's a lot more convenient to work with a broker that will be sure to cover their load as opposed to working with like a lot of carriers uh, who have small fleets, right? So that's kind of the the, the structure of this uh, uh, market. And, and there's no, there's really no technology for these carriers to operate their business. Now, there's a lot of technology out there that's called a TMS, for example, Transportation Management System. In uh, reality, most of those systems are focused on the shipper. So they allow the shipper to think about like, okay, you want to build a load, you have your orders, you put them into a load, here's how you pack this load, and then here's the, the load number, uh, but now you go find a carrier to move it. Um, and even if they have something about helping them find a carrier, 
usually the exchange between the shipper and the carrier is the, a PDF file that says, here's the load, uh, and that's, that's the communication between them. Um, and so, uh, so again, if you look at how a load is moved based on the perspective of a carrier, uh, and this is how it goes. They have these people called dispatchers, which are uh, all day they're looking for loads to put onto the trucks that they manage. They're making sure their existing loads are being covered. Right, so they're always looking for loads, making sure that to talk to the driver. If they find a load on the load board, so there is a little bit of technology. There's these things called load boards, where uh, a broker can go and they could look for loads, uh, um, uh, and uh, a carrier can go and look for loads there. But the extent of the load board is that you have some filters to narrow down the geographic area, but then there's a phone number uh, to call, uh, you know, to call and say, okay, hey, is this load still there? And then there's a lot of phone calls. Usually after the phone call, an email gets sent into Gmail. So then the dispatcher goes into Gmail, gets the information from Gmail about the load. They usually start texting the driver because they already know the driver uh, that's going to be working with them. They text the driver, they see the driver's schedule on an Excel spreadsheet that they painstakingly maintain every day. Uh, then they text the driver uh, to, to get moving. Then at the end of the day, they usually have to make sure to record all the things that they did so that uh, the rest of the team can recover uh, the, the, the process and take it uh, further. Uh, 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 usually there's like an overnight team that handles like calls from drivers at, at the night. Uh, but again, uh, there's no real software here besides Excel, besides your, your, your iPhone and Gmail and a few of these load boards. Um, uh, there, there is technology for tracking, for example, and that was actually uh, uh, back in, I think, 2015, the government mandated the use of these uh, electronic log devices, ELDs, for drivers, where it basically limits the amount of time they could drive in a day uh, to avoid these uh, scenarios where drivers drive for too long. So they do have these ELD devices that the drivers have to use. Uh, and so there's a few tech companies that provide these devices. In addition to tracking the hours, they also track the location. And there's a few other visibility type of services tracking, uh, the, the locations of things. But other than that, there's no real operational system for these carriers. Uh, and, and so, uh, usually what the larger carriers do, larger meaning like 100, 200 trucks, they actually uh, maintain the schedule for their drivers in Excel. They have an Excel spreadsheet that's shared and everyone painstakingly has to maintain and update it every day. Uh, and, and that's kind of like the center of their operation. And so what we did is we came in, we took that spreadsheet and made it into a, a reliable internet service, uh, to, to put it the, the, the quick way. <laughs> uh, and, and so uh, so Alvis is a pretty simple thing, right? It, it's not like inventing a new type of technology. It's just doing uh, a basic thing for people to help automate their workflows. Is that right now you go into Gmail, you go to all these different things. We bring it all into one platform. They have all the load details in there. They could text the driver from the load. They could uh, invite other carriers to look at this load. Uh, they could see where the drivers are. All the tracking data comes in. Um, and, and so we help the carrier with their operations, which is, again, looking for loads, handling existing loads, and then looking after the fleet, uh, like making sure the trucks are repaired, all the licensing is there, all the trailers are uh, tracked properly. Um and, uh, and so, yeah, so that's, uh, that's what Alvis does. Uh, one of the surprising things to me uh, coming into this industry over the past couple of years was actually 
how little has been done before. I thought that this would be a solved problem, uh, but it, it totally isn't. Uh, people are spending their time working on like crypto or yeah. uh, social media and all that stuff. But if you want to solve a real problem that's going to really help the world, the planet, like this, this, the amount of the amount of uh, wasted miles, empty miles, missed opportunities. Uh, we can create uh, if people adopt this technology is just going to be amazing. Yeah, and uh, and so yeah, that's what I've been uh, uh, working on. It's an overlooked industry. Silicon Valley is overlooked. It. I don't know how that happened. Uh, I don't know the big players like Oracle has like supply chain stuff, but it's like all they all, everything they have is like legacy. It's like old school, like floppy disk type of stuff. Uh, and uh, so we just found this uh, opportunity. And and how I got into this right was that. Um, I ran into somebody that was already doing this. I ran into somebody that was actually an operator of a trucking company and a freight brokerage, but one that was tech enabled. Like they actually started building their own stuff, uh, their own operational tools because uh, they saw that nothing else worked. Nothing else worked. So my business partner, Nick, who's the founder of of Alvis, he tried a bunch of different things. And so he started building his own software. We partnered to then take whatever he built for himself and we spun it off as Alvis as its own uh, technology company. And so, so we, we take his operational experience, the hands-on experience, and actually building the, the, this thing uh, the, the, you know, in, the, in the first place. And I'm kind of taking it and turn it into like a proper reliable service with an SLA and everything. Cool. <laughs> it might surprise you to know that I actually have a very good friend who was previously running a trucking company um and back in the late 90s actually uh uh we were talking and he was like you know you know a problem that needs to be solved is backhauling you know truck, mm-hmm. uh-huh. which yeah. you're probably aware of. and this is pretty much what you're talking i don't know if it's exactly on the it's mark exactly what I was yeah. Saying. yeah backhauling yeah. so empty miles so, uh, yeah. backhauling involves empty miles yeah. right where you have to travel uh, additional distance because you didn't sequence your loads properly up and return uh, on empty. Yeah, that's that's a huge problem. Yeah, de- do they call it deadheading or something like that? But, deadhead, yeah. yeah. De- so deadhead is basically the uh, uh, meaning that's the distance uh, uh, from the point of where the truck is to the pickup location. Mm-hmm. So you want to minimize the the, yeah. the deadhead, finding the, the one that's closest, right? But overall, uh, the other term for this general phenomenon is empty miles where you're yeah. just uh, the truck is empty or the truck is with an empty trailer um, uh, or, or anything like that, or the truck is like partially loaded, uh, which, which actually happens uh, quite a bit. Um, and, and, and again, with, even with Alvis, right, we're just scratching the surface. There's still so much manual stuff. Like we can't build uh, things quickly enough. Um, and so, so we're in the stage now where we have, we have customers, we have uh, paying customers, uh, but uh, not very many. We're, we just really started to sell back in April. We're trying to accelerate uh, uh, our, our sales grower product uh, while keeping a reliable reliable system. So it's kind of like a critical time for us. This next year is going to be kind of like a make it or break it year. Are we going to onboard enough customers to make it to the next level or is this not a thing? But we're getting a lot of very good feedback uh, because this market has been so overlooked uh, the software that we have is actually pretty good. It, 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 people get blown away when they see it. Uh, some of these people are coming from like desktop software. Uh, like there's this program called Pro Transport. It's a desktop like Windows type of thing. And those those users, are, they're, they're, one of the things they're really amazed about is you could have multiple windows. They're like, wow, like you could have two loads open at the same time. Uh, that's not something they, they, they gotten used yeah. to. And that, the, the software, it's like, 
to give you a sense of what it's like, uh, uh, Nick, my business partner, calls them glorified spreadsheets, where uh, like there's this view that looks like a spreadsheet that describes uh, uh, a list of loads, and then there's a cell where you would specify the, the driver that would handle it, right? And, uh, you know, they do have a track, uh, they, they have a list of all your assets. So you can click on that cell and then there's a drop down of all the trucks that you have. But that drop down is just alphabetically sorted uh, by the truck number. It has nothing to do with what the load is, where it is, where the driver is. The system doesn't think about that stuff. So you have this like drop down of like 100 trucks and you got to find the right number. And the system won't tell you anything of whether that's a good decision, whether that truck is doing anything or not. So that's kind of the world uh, that they're coming from. And uh, all we're doing is kind of like doing the obvious thing in this case uh, and, uh, and, and shipping it as a feature. Yeah, cool. I, I would think, actually, I think you alluded to this, but I would think that the marketing and sales is the harder part, like getting the message out, right? Like how, like these people are not watching, you know, like, uh, I mean, I would assume not on like tech forums and things like that or, you know. Um, so it's it varies. So the larger carriers, what we found, they are very sophisticated. They, they can be, right? Some of the really large ones, uh, uh, like uh, I, I know this carrier out of Chicago, they have like over 400 trucks. That's a major, major operation. Like they have their own development team and they actually do try to do stuff. Uh, some of the other ones, they, they're, you know, they're, they're sophisticated in a sense that they do try to find software. They, they are trying things. And uh, in order to be a good operator at that scale of 100 trucks, like you have to be doing something right. It's like not everybody can take a company to that level. And one of the ways is uh, thinking about uh, efficiency. It's just that uh, I think part of the issue is that the, what needs to be built is complicated enough to where you can't just get a trucking company to do it, even if they have like, you know, a uh, good income, you know, a trucking company is not going to be able to build like a super solid engineering team to build this kind of thing. Uh, but it's not that complicated where you need something overly specialized or uh, you just use the, the regular development tools that you have at your disposal. The cloud is very mature now. .NET, C Sharp are just uh, uh, very, very nice and cozy these days. Um, and um and so we just have to execute. But yeah, I mean, the marketing piece is, is difficult. Uh, this industry is quite uh, interactive, actually. Like I just got back from a conference. There was another one the week before. I'm going to another one next week. Uh, so the freight industry overall is quite social. Uh, and so people are on the lookout uh, for things. Um, and um, it just has to be a fit. Uh, there's a lot of challenges here, right? This is a very big piece of software. It's pretty complicated to use. It's a big commitment to onboard to it. The software has to be super reliable, super fast, no data loss. And so it's like a big serious decision for a carrier to transfer it into it. Uh, and, and, and so we have to uh, really uh, tell a good story, provide a good uh, value proposition. Um, and uh, I will say though, that reaching the smaller carriers uh, is going to be indeed a challenge. So these owner operators, a lot of them are like just uh, some guy owns a truck, he drives it, answers the phone, uh, it does everything off the phone. There's a lot of those, and those are going to be harder to reach because they're not necessarily attending conferences. They're always uh, on their on their car, not really on browsing the internet as much. We have to find a, a way to reach them uh, more effectively. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, this has been a really intriguing conversation because we went uh, we went you know pretty deep into um, technical stuff and also business and we learned a little bit about alvi's um uh 
ubiquitous language or at least part you know part of it mm-hmm. so very cool and it's also probably uh the longest podcast i've ever had so <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah we oh uh, yeah no 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 i mean this is great i mean to me it's like there's a lot to learn here so if someone needs uh you know two commutes to listen to it that that should be fine. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and Alvis, uh, I feel like we didn't. Uh, there's a lot more to talk about in terms of domain-driven design at Alvis because uh, it's like a must uh, for us uh, to, to really invest into the domain model, where uh, we really need to. Because uh, a lot, a lot of times, it's tempting to just start writing code, right? But in our case, like we really need to like whiteboard it out and. You know, I don't know if I have anything interesting here, but yeah. like, uh, you really need to model the thing uh, and really write down the language before we start uh, yeah. uh, doing a lot of coding. Yeah. Well, um, I, hmm. so should people, if people are interested in writing um, uh, some C sharp and working on on Azure, should they contact you for for work? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we'll we'll have that on the. Um, on the podcast page for you. So yeah, it's been really nice to talk again and uh, best wishes on your adventure. Yeah, well, thank you. Let's uh, let's keep in touch. Right Thanks for having me on. Okay. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and stay tuned for more. This podcast is sponsored and produced by Kalele makers of Domo Roboto and the Zoom platform. To learn more, visit kalele.io. That's K-A-L-E-L-E dot I-O. Thanks for listening.